Give me a glass of water. Well, Happy New Year. Man, we get Everybody's like, eh. Nobody likes it when New Year's like too close to Sunday, right? Am I wrong about that? Nobody likes it when it's too close to Sunday, and nobody likes it when it's like, you know, sub-Arctic temperatures. Everybody's freezing and huddled up close to the fire. Well, indeed, as David had mentioned, um, Dennis is a grandpa, and uh, Marion's a grandma again. And Tammy and I are grandma- grandparents for the first time. And I don't think my wife's feet have touched the floor all week. She has been floating on air with excitement. No, no I'm, I'm, Mr. St- I'm Mr. Steady. Don't worry, Tori, I'll talk for a long time. You have lots of time to pick up those pencils. Actually, this last week, and this has nothing to do with the sermon, but it made me think about it. Uh, <clears throat> the night before, last Sunday night, we were watching videos, weren't we? Yeah, we, were, we, we got out the old tapes, and we actually watched through a kind of a series of, of videotapes. Now, if you know anything about our family, Tammy's from western New York, and I'm from right here. And so <clears throat> one of the ways that we kind of communicated with her mom especially and uh, siblings was to basically back then, way back in the early 90s. Can you fathom that far back? Uh, we, uh, we actually would film what was going on in our lives and basically just mail video. The old, the old tapes, they're like this big, not a thumb drive. It wasn't on the iCloud. It's now called Marco Polo. In the old days, it was on VHC tapes, and we passed these tapes back and forth. Well, one of the tapes that we had was of the uh, week leading up to Michaela being born. And so we sat and watched that video, and then actually after her birth. We didn't videotape the birth. We weren't that. I mean, if, if people are into that, whatever, but we weren't. And uh, so... Anyway, so it was kind of, and then the next day, Monday, Michaela goes into labor. It was kind of a neat thing. So we're super excited to welcome Anna, Evelyn, Alwine into our family. And uh, no doubt, Jonathan and Michaela are floating on ours as well. You want to see an excited guy, you should see Jonathan with his new little girl. It's a sight to behold, isn't it? Sure is. So... Anyway, welcome everyone. If it's your first time or first couple of times of being here, we're glad that you're here. We have come, uh, we're going to circle back into, we've taken a few weeks off of our study in First, Corinthi- in first Corinthians. We're going to circle back into First Corinthians. And we've kind of, we've kind of uh, uh, teed this chapter up for a while. Uh, it's most commonly known throughout all of the world as the love chapter. Uh, some of the most quoted verses in the Bible our uh, love is kind, some of the most qu- quoted words or phrases is love is kind, it bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things, and love never fails. Those are definitely uh, uh, quoted uh, numerous, numerous times, uh, thousands of times perhaps over the course of a year. Certainly love is a popular topic even in our culture, and these types of themes, these types of phrases, uh, will be found regardless of what people, what their 
what their real beliefs are, what their faith is, or whatever. These are kind of universal in that sense, uh, but they come right here from God's Word. Uh, it's almost always quoted at weddings. In fact, that would be the, the prime. When, when, I think, when I talk about 1 Corinthians 13, most people think about uh, the wedding service because almost always are these words or these concepts inserted into a, uh, w- a wedding uh, and they should be. Um, it's, it's, it's a great um, reminder for the bride and the groom, really for the, everybody that's at a wedding, uh, to take a look at the characteristics of love. Uh, in the context of 1 Corinthians, though, Paul has not limited this topic just to a wedding venue. In fact, it really has nothing to do specifically in the context with a wedding. And We've looked at a, so we're going to look at what that context is. The questions that we've explored three weeks ago is, um, what is it that motivates God to do what he does? What is it that motivates God to do what he does? Unequivocally, the answer is love. The answer is love. Everything in the Old Testament, all that we see in the Old Testament, and we started into a new venture. Uh, We've bought over the years um, dozens and dozens of the chronological Bibles, you can read through the Bible in a year. Uh, our family's kind of embracing that this year. I've never done it. I've read a lot of the Bible in a year, but I've never read cover to cover in a chronological sense. And so we're on day two. And so uh, today, this morning, and actually, um, if you have the Version Bible app on your phone, uh, you can get that in an audio format as well. If you're unsure about what I'm talking about, see me afterwards. But I don't know if we have, we've given away so many of those Bibles. I don't know if we have any left in the office, but uh, if you're interested, we'd definitely uh, help hook you up in that way. Um, But everything in the Old Testament is done out of love. So we're in Genesis chapter 4, 5, and 6 today. And you see God's hand of love at work even in the uh, early creation and post-creation events and post, even in the, the post-sin, uh, <laughs> the fall of man events. Uh, everything that God has done, not just in the Old Testament, so let's take it out of just what we have in front of us for a Bible, whether it's our uh, uh, paper copy or digital copy, but not every, it's, it's not limited to just what God has done in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I guess you could say it in this way. It's, it extends to this very moment. It extends to the every event and things in your life that you've experienced, the good, bad, and the ugly, the awesome, the great. It, it definitely, definitely talks about, uh, we see God's love at, at work Monday night at 6.09 when Anna was born. But we see it even in, in the difficult tragedies of life. God has a plan. God has a purpose. And His love is motivating Him to do what He's doing in all of our lives. So the kind of the third little some point there is everything that God has done in your life is done with a motivation of love. But why? Why is God so motivated by love? And I want to kind of start off this chapter with this concept. The reason why God is so motivated by love is so that we can see, by saying we, all of us, but even so we can help other people see, so we can see God calling us out, God calling us out of our sin and into a covenant relationship with His Son, Jesus. And that's based on Jesus' goodness, not our own. 
not our own. We'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, but from there, from that position, from that trusting Christ as your Savior, putting your hope and your faith solely on Him for the uh, forgiveness of your sins, the forgiveness of my sins, then we're all empowered through His indwelling Holy Spirit to live out a godly life. Uh, one of my favorite verses, First Peter, tells us that God gives us everything we need, His, His Holy Spirit, His power empowers us to, to do all we need to do to, to live a godly life. That's a great promise from God. First Peter chapter 1. I forgot to write down the verse, but look it up. First Peter chapter 1. I think it's about verse what? 5? 3. It's about verse 3, yeah. Uh, the second thing besides the empowering is, is then we're equipped. We're equipped with these supernatural gifts to build up the church. That's what we studied for three weeks ago, First Corinthians chapter 12. God's given His people supernatural endowment, supernatural gifts, and we see that also in Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and Ephesians chapter 4. And here in chapter 12 specifically, Paul's been teaching about these gifts, the variety of the gifts, and a couple of attitude warnings about the gifts that we should heed. And those two warnings that we looked at a few weeks ago were these, you don't need me, that's one warning, don't fall into the you don't need me or my gifts trap. We had the little Mr. Potato up, head up here, which was given away to the baby. Perfect timing, right? Grandpa has a sense of perfect timing. It's really bizarre to refer to yourself as grandpa. I'll just say that up front. But we have the, we have the warning of, hey, you don't need me, church. Don't fall into that trap. Let me tell you just absolutely straightforward. The church... The church at large, this church specifically, God has gifted you, if you're a Christ follower, with supernatural gifts that are to be enjoyed and utilized by all of us. By all of us. It's like a potluck of supernatural gifts. Everybody should dine in that sense. Everybody should enjoy. Everybody should partake uh, in a life and in a community with everybody's gifts being presented. Most churches don't operate that way, okay? We need to be better at that. Let's just put it that way, and we'll dive into that another time. So the first warning there, you don't need me. The second warning is, is that uh, we don't need you, which is equally as wrong. The warning that Paul says, hey, you know, uh, uh, we don't, the, the, the whole body metaphor, the ears, the hands, you know, the mouth, the nose, all of that, this idea that you don't me, or, need me or that we don't need you, that you're an unnecessary part of the body, is alive from the pit of hell. And Paul sternly warns against that. And he, he says this phrase there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. God has placed exactly into the body exactly those gifts that he has designed. And he's, he's brought people together. He's brought this group of people together. Why? Do we know all the reasons Why? Why are you here? Why am I here? We know bits and pieces. But it's God that's doing the orchestrating. It's God that's doing the placing together. It's God that is putting together the group or the variety of groups really around the world just as He sees fit. Then we get to the end of chapter 12. So just a little review here as we get going. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the transitional verse in talking about the gifts, Paul says this in verse 31 of chapter 12, but earnestly desire the best gifts, 
and yet I will show you a more excellent way. The question is, arises as we turn to chapter 13 is what is that more excellent way? What is it that we need? What is so important that if we don't have it, we miss the whole point of God gifting us supernaturally? Better stated then, what motivator does God require of us? That's the question we should be asking ourselves this morning. What motivator does God require of us? And this takes chapter 13 then uh, and expands it way beyond the wedding service, way beyond the plaques and the, and, the, and the cute little signs that hang on the living room wall or the bathroom wall. It takes it way beyond that. And God is saying, here's the motivator, church. Here's the motivator that I, I want you to have as you interact with the gifts that I've given you in the place that I've put you. Here's the motivation that I want you to have. Turn to chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. Maybe you're already there. Let's go through it a little bit at a time rather than oftentimes I read through the whole thing and then we come back. But I would rather just take this a piece at a time. The first point here that Paul brings out, the thing that I've wrote down in my notes, is intense. there's these intense events without love as a motivator. And Paul starts here with two huge statements about the exercise of spiritual gifts without the right motivator, without love as a motivator. So the first one here, let's read it together. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. It profits me nothing. See, there's these dramatic spiritual expressions without love, and, and we, can have, we can have these dramatic spiritual experiences, these dramatic expressions of, uh, of, of sacrifice or, or whatever, or of giftedness. We can have all of that, he says, but without being motivated by love. He says, it's, not, it's useless. I am nothing, he says. So it's possible to do all these miraculous things and not be truly motivated by love. True love comes from the personal connection that we have with God through Christ. See, Jesus had a little parallel statement, a little parallel statement in Matthew chapter 7, where he says this to his disciples, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? There's a supernatural gift coming to bear. Have we cast out demons in your name? Supernatural event, supernatural gifting. And have we not done many wonders in your name? Another supernatural occurrence. And then I will declare, says Jesus, I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, that all the right languages, human or angelic, without love, it sounds terrible. It sounds horrible. Where's Bill at? We'll give you a demonstration of how bad it sounds. Who wants a demonstration? 
Daniel wants a demonstration. <laughs> Bill was trying to pass this off as something that maybe Daniel would come up and play. But doesn't this just sound terrible without all the rest of the music? A clanging cymbal. My wife loves it. I can see the look on her face. She does. You don't like it? You wanted more? Ro- Robbie wanted Sounding brass. Sounding. One, two, seven, twelve. Yeah, that's what it's like. It sounds terrible. It sounds terrible when we play it that way compared to the beautiful worship music we were all just enjoying and singing and participating in. Sounded wonderful. Sounded awesome, right? And Paul's telling the Corinthians church here that without love, you can do all of these things. You can have all these awesome events. You can speak in these tremendous languages, men of, uh, uh, languages of mankind and of angels. You can do all of that and without love for one another. It's equivalent to what Bill and I just demonstrated. It sounds horrible. It sounds like garbage. That's Paul's point. That's the Lord's point here. So we can have this gift of prophecy and all understanding, knowledge, and faith, do miracles. But it's really this. It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant without love. That's the point. He makes another statement here. So it's possible to have all these dramatic experiences, these expressions without love. He says the Corinthians church here missed the motive and the goal of the gifts. We don't want to miss the motive and the goal of the gifts making them our own goal all by themselves. That's the concern. That's what was going on in the church in Corinth, is the gifts themselves became the finish line. The gifts themselves became the goal line, as it were, and so the focus was just on that, and it was not about the bigger picture. It was not about how they affected other people. It was not about any of that, and it wasn't being motivated by love, Paul draws the attention back to love here in chapter 13, right out of the gate. Don't miss really what's being communicated. I want to make this really clear. It's not an issue of love versus the gifts. It's not that issue. Too many people make that the issue, that it's love or the gifts. It's not either or, but it's both. And when one piece of that component is missing, then we have uh, imbalance in the church. We have imbalance in the church. So it's not either or, but both, with love being the motivation. Otherwise, we're prone to frustration. Otherwise, we're prone to frustration. See, possession of the charisma, the charismata, the gifts, is not the sign of the Spirit, The Word says that Christian love is the sign of the Spirit of God indwelling His people. Likewise, Paul mentions then in verse 3, this idea of dramatic self-denial without love is also useless. Dramatic self-denial without being motivated by love is useless. He says in verse 3, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Then I'm nothing. On one hand, we have the picture of gaining all the spiritual gifts without love as being useless. Now in verse 3, we have the emptying of everything that we have without love is also useless. So on one side, gaining everything 
Paul says, without love, that doesn't work. Losing everything, thinking that you're, you know, that, that you're in the right, giving it all away. Now we're called to a life of sacrifice to get that. I understand that. But now giving it all away without truly being motivated for love for one another and love of the Lord is equally as useless for centuries and in nearly all cultures around the world and in all religions. Self-denial has been, in a way, it's been a way to appease an angry God and to gain favor or to stave off wrath. That's what self-denial historically looks like. For many thousands or millions of people throughout history, this idea of self-denial is somehow a way to appease an angry God, somehow a way to, to push back that wrath from that angry God and to try to find a sliver of favor until the next opportunity to sacrifice. The great thing about Christianity is Christianity is the only faith that teaches self-denial as an outcome of our faith, not a means to gain it. Don't miss that point. If you're missing that point in your walk with the Lord, you are going to be frustrated. Christianity is the only faith that teaches self-denial is an outcome of our faith, not a means to gain it. Look at the phrase there, bestow all my goods to feed the poor. Uh, this is what Jesus told the rich young ruler to do in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. And the rich young ruler was struggling. He struggled with that, right? He could keep all the law, but when, he, when Jesus said, all right, now apply the law through give it all away, he was done. That was the end of it, right? But even the rich young ruler, <clears throat> it's a great uh, story, yet he had not love really was the point of Jesus' parable there. Or the phrase there, give my body to be burned. A grand act of self-denial and martyrdom, perhaps the most painful way to die, I would assume, I haven't tried it, I don't plan on it, <laughs> is to be burned alive. The Bible uh, and both the Bible and church history tells of many who met their fate by being burned to death, such as Barnab uh, Barnabas, Thomas, Antipas, uh, hundreds, perhaps thousands maybe, in Rome, where the emperor set ablaze Christians who refused to renounce Christ. He would, set them a uh, uh, he would put them on poles, set them ablaze in the evening to light the streets of Rome. Hundreds, if not thousands, of Christ followers gave their life. They gave their life for Christ rather than, self rather than to recant their faith in Christ. They gave their lives to be martyrs. As sacrificial as it is, without love as a motivator, it's useless. Each thing described here in 1 Corinthians 1 through 3 is a good thing. Tongues are a good thing. Prophecy and knowledge and faith are good. Sacrifice is good. But love is so valuable, so important, that apart from it, every other good thing is useless. Sometimes we make the great mistake of letting go of what is best. <clears throat> letting go of what is best for something else that's good, but not the best. So Paul goes on to describe then how love motivates these emphatic uh, expressions and description, Paul goes on to describe how love then will motivate the actions that we have. Look at verse 4. 
Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked. <clears throat> it thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. True love is always demonstrated in action. We can say all we want to, but we know and you know that love is demonstrated by how we behave, how we treat one another, how we interact with one another. True love always demonstrated by our actions. He starts off that list with two things that love is. It's long-suffering. It's long-suffering. How do you quantify long? Is this long? Is that a long fish? Better? Better? Brock, you help me. Better? Can I borrow somebody's arm? I'm just kidding. How, how, how do you quantify long? Is the length of this room long compared to what? It doesn't, doesn't give us a, 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 a quantifier. It just says that it's long-suffering, that love is long-suffering. Love will endure a long time. I think it's our own human mind that puts some sort of a measurement to long-suffering, like eventually we get to the point where, well, that's long enough. But love will endure a long time. It's the heart shown in God. <clears throat> when it's said of the Lord here in this passage in Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us. Anybody know how many days uh, they've been alive right now? No? Anybody do the math that fast? Some of you mathematicians out there. Anybody know? Like, quick that quick. Pete, do you know how many days you've been alive? No? I'm guessing it's been a long time. I'm guessing because we're roughly the same age. It feels like a long time. Whoa. See what I had to grow up with? I knew she'd figure it out. 2,080 2,880 days. So, a trick question for our family, is that a long time? <laughs> By the time we got done uh, yesterday with our little project, did it feel like a long, did it feel like you've been a long, alive a long time? Two weeks, right. We had a little project at mom's yesterday, we had a lot of fun with. <clears throat> God is long-suffering towards us, Peter tells us. Long-suffering. Uh, we're often not as long-suffering with one another as we should be. But God is the, the, the plumb line. Second Peter 3.9 says, He's long-suffering toward us, us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the reason why. Because He loves us. Because He loves mankind. So He doesn't want to see anybody perish without embracing His Son, Jesus. If God's love is in us, then we're gonna sh we will show long-suffering in tough situations. See, <clears throat> it's not long-suffering. 
It's a, maybe a long time, but Paul specifically says long-suffering, which means that there's some sort of struggle. There's some sort of tribulation going on. Like if it was just a, a year's worth of highs, every single day was a, was a high, everything was good, there was no problems, there was no struggle, there was no stress, it might be a long time, but it's not going to be long-suffering. It's going to be long enjoyment. But he's not talking about just the highs. He's talking about the fact that reality sets in where we're going to have highs and lows. And if God's love is in us, then we're going to show long-suffering in difficult and tough situations. The second thing that love is is it's kind. Love is kind. When we have (coughs) and show God's love, it will be seen in the simple acts of kindness. A wonderful measure of kindness is to see how children receive us. And children won't receive, uh, they, won't, they won't receive us, they won't receive from or respond to unkind people. If you're mean to a kid, if you're mean to one of, you know, uh, that's, this is just the reality of the, the, the uh, innocence, if you will, the straightforwardness of our young people or any young person. But if you're mean to them, they really just don't want anything to do with you. They're not going to go back time and time again to be picked on, to be made fun of. They don't a- operate that way. It's a kind of a good measure. That's how we should be to one another, not the picking on kind, but the simply be kind to one another. Love is kind. Then Paul says there's eight things that love isn't. There's eight things that love is not. It's not envious. The opposite of envy is contentment. Uh, the old-timers used to have this little saying that they would uh, live by. True contentment is, not wanting what you ha- uh, is wanting what you have, not having what you want. Contentment is, is wanting what you've been blessed with, what God has given you, what God has provided for you, not having what you want. So should that say we shouldn't ever want something outside of that? I'm not saying that. I don't think the old-timers uh, in their little cutesy saying or meaning that they're simply saying that if you're so focused on what you don't have that you're constantly discontent discontent with one another discontent with your things discontent with life discontent with with your job Disc- you you can apply it to wherever maybe you're struggling with this idea and this concept of being envy or envious God calls us to be content. Content. And the opposite of contentment is to envy. The sin of of envy uh, did some pretty horrific things in the Bible, just to name a few. Envy killed Abel. Envy enslaved Joseph and sent him to Egypt. And it was envy that took Jesus to the cross. It was the envious nature expressed through the Jewish leadership. They just kept hammering at this guy, hammering at this new teacher, hammering at this Galilean, hammering at this guy that was becoming popular to the point where that envy drove them actually to fulfill prophecy and take Jesus to the cross. The second thing that love isn't, it's, it's not proud. Love doesn't parade itself. It's not proud. Love has the ability to work anonymously without the extra motivation of recognition. Love has the ability to work anonymously 
It doesn't need that parading itself around. Look what I've done. Look what's going on here. Look what we've accomplished. Look, what, look, 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 look. It's not that way. It has the ability to quietly go about business and be a blessing to other people in the process without having to have big time or regular recognition. Love is not arrogant. It's not puffed up, the word says. Pride and arrogance kind of go hand in hand. They're self-focused and always looking for praise. They're self-focused and always looking for praise, and that's not what God calls love. Another thing that love isn't, it's, it's not rude. True love <coughs> is full of kindness and it's full of good manners. Where men still have chivalry and ladies are sweet and gentle. There's been quite a shift in our culture and the cultural attitudes in recent years where chivalry and gentleness have been replaced with road rage and culture Karens. It's true. And it's up to us as Christ followers, to not just shy away from the culture, but wade right into the culture with love, with love, showing chivalry men, opening the door for the ladies, right? Showing uh, gentleness and kindness, ladies, not being quick with our tongue and comebacks and all this kind of stuff, all this kind of stuff that are attitudes in our cultures. We need to do away with those. Don't let these attitudes creep into the church for sure, but it starts with us right here checking our own hearts and saying, are we rude? Do we struggle with being rude? Do we struggle with being rude because so many hearts around us in our culture have grown cold, as the word says? Don't be rude. Don't be rude in the public square or in private. Don't let these attitudes creep into your families, into your marriages. Don't let these attitudes creep into the church, for sure. Another thing that love is not, it's not cliquish. It's not cliquish. It doesn't seek its own, the word says. A common topic that Paul addresses in many of his letters is this idea of don't seek your own. Don't seek your own. Don't seek just the good of yourself or those in your little group or your best friends. Don't, don't go there. Don't be exclusive in that sense. Paul says, hey, we're to seek the good of everybody. Romans 12.10, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. That's battling against cliquishness. Philippians 2, 4, let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's battling against cliquishness, against seeking its own. In Ephesians 5, 21, submitting to one another out of the fear of God. That's the idea of, of, of not promoting just yourself or just a small group or just this tight, this tight niche, but it's expanding that beyond and saying, hey, we're all part of one another. We should be battling for one another. Love doesn't seek its own. It's, neither does it seek its own. Or is it suspicious is the word that I wrote in my list. It's not provoked. If you're provoked, you're being suspicious. It's <clears throat> often easy to let ourselves be irritated and annoyed over certain issues or with certain people. In fact, Moses was kept from the promised land and 
Numbers chapter 20 tells us, because he was provoked against the people. So there's some consequences that God measures out from time to time over this idea of, uh, of being provoked. Moses was called to lead Israel, lead them out of slavery into the promised land. And it was a rocky road and a rocky ride at best. But Moses kind of gets topped out, Numbers 20 tells us. He kind of has had it. And he ends up being provoked, the word is, provoked against the people there. Numbers 20, verses 2 through 11, you can look it up this week. Provoked against the people, and God uh, disciplines him harshly for it. He never, he could only see the promised land. He could never step across the Jordan into it. There's another, uh, there's another proverb that I like. Proverbs 19.11 speaks to this idea of not being provoked or being suspicious. Proverbs 19.11 says, The discretion of man makes him slow to anger, and his, <coughs> and his glory is to overlook a transgression. His glory is to overlook a transgression. In other words, let's put it in layman's terms, let it go. Let it go. Don't be suspicious. Don't be provoked. Something happens. Like, our culture is so quick to just grab into something and I'm just going to fight, fight, fight for whatever. And we get agitated. We get provoked. We get angry. We, we what is that, snarl our teeth and cha-cha-cha-cha. Les told me that one time. When they're gnashing their teeth, they're going, cha-cha-cha-cha-cha. That's a direct quote. It was probably one of my favorites. But we get that type of attitude in our minds and in our hearts, and it's, the Word says it's not loving. It's not loving to act that way. No, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we just let it go. Now, I'm not saying that we, I'm not advocating that we just be, you know, uh, somebody's uh, doormat, that we just be trampled on. I'm not saying that at all. But this is the discretion of a man to be slow to anger. Don't be suspicious. Don't be provoked. Neither that or don't be happy with evil. I think this one is pretty self-explanatory, but it literally means love does not store up the memories of any wrong it has received. It doesn't keep score. The only way that is possible, <coughs> the only way that this is possible is to forgive all the wrongs that have been done to us. The person that can truly forgive is actually the person that's set free in the equation. Does, don't, don't keep accounts. Don't keep accounts. Don't be bitter in that sense. Don't, the old timers used to use this word. Don't hold a grudge. Don't hold a grudge. It's like wishing the other person would uh, keel over while you're the one that's drinking poison. That's what holding a grudge does. Don't hold a grudge. Don't be happy with evil in that sense. Forgiveness is one of the greatest acts of love that we can give. And it says, I love you in spite of the sin and the hurt and the pain. That's what forgiveness says. Is that I can still love you. I don't, I'm not endorsing what you've done to me. I'm not endorsing what's happened in this situation or what you've done to somebody else. But it says, I'm going to forgive you. I'm choosing to forgive you because Jesus forgave me. I am empowered. I'm equipped. I have the, the ability then to forgive you in spite of what you've done. And it doesn't say that that's okay. It just says that you're forgiven. And the person in the process that really is freed up is you. Is you. Not so much the other person's not off the hook. 
If there's consequences to their sins and their actions, God will hold them accountable, he says in his word. He'll have to, he, she, whoever it is, will have to live with those consequences for sure. That's God's part. Your part, my part, is to forgive. And forgiveness is one of the greatest acts of love. Forgiveness says, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not going to stick around with this evil. I'm not going to entertain it. I'm going to let it go. Paul moves into five more things that love is. We talked about what they are in, in the first two, long-suffering and kindness, and several things of what they aren't. But he kind of wraps up this list with five more things that love is. Love rejoices in the truth. Love always stands with truth because truth, <clears throat> because true love is pure and it's good like truth. They always work together. Love bears all things. Real love is strong. Real love is strong. We, we kind of have this idea in our culture that, that love is soft and cozy you know, like a, like a new throw blanket that's, you know, meant to just snuggle up on the couch. <laughs> that's not that way at all. And if you're a guy, you really didn't like that analogy. So you're like, all right, yeah, I'll take a blanket every once in a while, but the rest of the time, you know, let's toughen up. Real love is strong. It's powerful. It's one of the greatest motivators there is in all the universe is love for one another. It bears all things. Real love is strong like a massive beam. It can bear the load and stress and strain. Take a quick peek at First, or first Peter 4, 8 for a little reference to that. Another one, for the sake of time, let's move on. Real love believes all things. Love, <clears throat> as far as she can, believes in her fellows. I know some persons who habitually believe everything that is bad, but they are not like the children of love. I wish the chatters would take a turn at exaggerating other people's virtues and go from house to house <coughs> trumping, trumping up pretty stories of their acquaintances, C.H. Spurgeon. It believes all things. We have a tendency to, to run out of string when it comes to believing all things. Love when it's, true love when it's combined with faith is willing to go on. It's kind of a similar story, I suppose, or analogy to being long-suffering. It believes all things. Not naive, but believes that God can do whatever God chooses to do. And it sticks with that. Love hopes all things. Love by nature is hopeful, not pessimistic. By nature, it's hopeful, not pessimistic. And in the days that we live, we must fight the draw of pessimism, and display hope of an awesome future. That's our imperative as believers. That we show, that we demonstrate, that we live lives that are hopeful, not pessimistic. And I'm going to tell you, I, I'll put my myself at the front of this list because I can bend in real easy and real quick to a, a pessimistic attitude. Most people, maybe you don't know that. You think, really, you? It's like, yeah. I mean, I look around what's going on in the world thinking, yeah, when's the fire going to start, you know? This ain't looking good. But in Christ, we're called to hope. We're called to a life of hope. And we're called to display hope and the awesome future that comes at the end. The last thing here, the last of the last five, 
is that love endures all things. Looping back to the first description of love and long-suffering, true love is able to sustain us through all the bashing waves of life. It will endure. About the time that we feel like we should give up on the buoy of life, we have to remember that love endures all things. Love endures all things. Most of us can rejoice in the truth and uh, <coughs> bear all things and believe all things and hope all things uh, for a little while. For a little while. And the greatness of agape love that Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 13 the greatness of agape love is, is it keeps on bearing, it keeps on believing, it keeps on hoping, and it doesn't give up. It destroys enemies by turning them into friends. That's what love does. It takes down enemies by turning them into friends. In the culture we live in, that's, that's kind of our call, is to pilfer out of the enemy camp those that God is calling, if you will, to reach and steal and grab a few here and there, or however we go about it, pilfer them to the love camp. Because love destroys enemies by turning them into friends. What motivation does God require of his people? Obviously, it's that of love. And I want to say this as we close, that the worship team will come on up, and David we want to prepare for communion. I want to say this because oftentimes we get to kind of maybe uh, passages like this and uh, we end up frustrated with ourselves. We end up uh, battling kind of internally because we're like, well, I, I, can't, I can't do that. We get to that point where we're like, yeah, I, I get it. I, I, I've read this chapter you know hundreds of times and and i get it mentally but like in reality in my heart i i just can't go i just don't i've tried you know all the excuses kind of come surface to the top all the reasons why you should not be loving surface to the top all the reasons why you should not be motivated by god's love kind of surface to the top and here's my reply to that here's my reply to that when God requires, He also equips and inspires. What God requires of you, what God requires of me, He's also going to equip you and inspire you to walk that out. Don't stop in the middle of the trail. Too many times the stories are, uh, of people are cut short because they gave up partway down the line. They stopped in the middle of their race. They stopped in the middle of what they were supposed to do, how they were supposed to live, where they were supposed to go in life, how they were to lead their families, how they were to lead their, their wives' men, how they were to follow their husbands' lady. They stopped too early in the story. Don't kill your own story because you don't think that you have it in you to be loving. And here's the secret. You don't by yourself. In your own power, you don't have enough, you don't have what it takes to live out 1 Corinthians 13. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the story of Jesus. That's the beauty of the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Because you don't have that power, but Christ in you will fulfill those promises. Christ in you will empower you and equip you to live out the love life that's strong, 
that's confident, that's compassionate, that stands in the face of the culture that just keeps bashing, bashing against us. But no, we're staying focused. We're staying on point as believers. So when God requires, and I'm here to say this morning, this is what God requires of us as Christ followers. So don't make any mistake about that. These aren't just cute suggestions that the Apostle Paul said, hey, take it or leave it. <laughs> That's not that. This is what God requires of his people. And when God requires something, he always, always, always equips and inspires them to live it out. I can't think of a single story in the Bible that doesn't show that storyline that doesn't show where God is able to step into a situation in somebody's weakness in somebody's you know feeble-mindedness or or uh, physical weakness I can't think of a single story all I can think of is stories where people in and of themselves were weak and God stepped in and made them strong sometimes he does that in weird ways Ah, Gideon, you got a lot of guys. Let's just pare these guys down. Ah, let's do it again. Ah, cut them down again. We get down to just a few hundred fellas. All right, now you're good to go. Doesn't make sense to me, but it made sense to God. Where God requires, he equips and inspires. David, will you come and lead us in communion?